question of who we are is a vital question, not only to our own personal functioning, but also to our ability to relate to other people. In this session, I want us to address what it's going to take for us to be able to relate to each other in a healthy way in our families, at work, at play, wherever we are, based on the information we'll be studying in the Alpha series concerning who we are. In order to do that, we need to go back again to the first book, the Book of Beginnings in Genesis chapter 2, where we learned about how God made man from the dust of the earth, or from the elements, and he made him a three-part being, body, soul, and spirit, and he put together a very complex, a very marvelous thing called this body, and put a person inside that body, we've referred to as a soul, and then actually breathed life into that person, which we're referring to as the spirit. Now, in order for us to understand something about ourselves, we're going to have to understand what it means to be a body, soul, and spirit, and we'll be learning about the particular components of these a little later. We'll be looking at particularly the components of the soul, that is, our mind, our will, our emotions, and our needs. But for right now, I want us to look at what it means to relate to other people. How important is this question, who are we, in terms of relating to other people? And so in Genesis chapter 2, after the creation account, the specific account of man, we're told about the account of the creation of woman. And I want you to drop down in your reading with me into verse 18 of Genesis chapter 2, where the story of the creation of woman begins. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone, and I will make him a help suitable for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and of every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a help meet or suitable for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now in these few verses, we have a description here of how God made the woman. And notice, first of all, that the woman was completely different. As, as far as the creation account, the woman was made in a completely different fashion than the man. The man, you see, was made out of the elements of the earth directly. But the woman was taken out of the man. As we read Adam's statement, she shall be called woman. She, he named her woman because she was taken out of man. In the Hebrew, by the way, it's a very beautiful uh, statement because the Hebrew word for man is ish, and the Hebrew word for woman is isha. And it illustrates, even grammatically, how the woman was taken out of the man. Now, this has some serious implications concerning our relationships the creation of woman in this fashion, and that's what I want us to address. Now, in, in order for us to understand this, we're going to have to look at what God was up to. You'll notice again in verse 18, he said, God saw that it was not good for man to be alone. This was not, as so many people suppose, 
because the man was lonely. You see, God had created this man, and he had fellowship with this man, and to have fellowship with the creator of the universe makes it virtually impossible to be lonely. You cannot be lonely when you're in full fellowship with the creator and sustainer of the universe. So when God saw that it was not good for man to be alone, it wasn't in his mind that this guy is going to be lonely. Now, undoubtedly, after he had told Adam, you're alone, Adam got to looking around and he said, you're right. There isn't anybody else around here that is suitable for me. He looked at all the created beings that God had made and the animals and the birds and so on, and he says, nothing matches me. Nothing corresponds me. I'm not, nothing's like me. There is no way to have communion uh, in a true sense with these created beings. And so God, when he saw this condition, said it was not good, not because Adam was alone originally, but because it was not good for God that Adam be alone. And one of the most important things that you ladies need to come to grips with in particular, in order for you to understand who you are, one of the most difficult things women struggle with is a sense of significance, a sense of meaning and purpose. We'll define these terms a little later in our study, but for right now, just follow with me that one of the most difficult things historically for women throughout all the history of man has been to, to answer the question, what good are we? Why are we here? Now, in recent modern times, you've had some pretty serious reaction to uh, this question, and of course, the modern women's movements of, of our day and so on seeks to address that kind of issue, but they do it, in my opinion, in a, in a bad fashion because they're not looking to see what God says about the woman to begin with. You see, God knew that what he had planned for the human race could not be accomplished by Adam alone. This is perhaps the most, or the greatest and most uh, astounding statement in the scripture concerning the place, the role, and the value of womanhood. And so when God saw that Adam was alone, he said, I'll make him a help suitable for him, literally. I'll make him a help meet for him. Now, ladies, you get the idea sometimes that this word help means you're not really quite as good. You're, you're kind of like a helper of some sort or another. And you get the idea that, that a help is like an assistant that you could do without or who, worse, gets in the way sometimes. But remember, as God uses the term help here in the scriptures, he refers to himself as a help. In other words, the name that Jesus gave his spirit, God's Holy Spirit, was comforter or paraclete in the Greek, which is also translated helper. He is our helper. So God identifies himself with the word help as well. The fact that he says it's not good for the man to be alone it was that it was not good for God's purpose. God's plan and his purpose for humanity cannot be fulfilled by Adam alone. He had to make for him then a help, one who was suitable for him that in which he could actually fulfill God's plan and purpose. Now let me diagram this for you on the board so that you'll have an understanding of what I'm talking about with regards to God's perfect plan of revealing himself. This goes all the way back, by the way, now to the, the fact that God orig originally had in mind a revelation of himself to humanity when he created humanity. And the best way for God to show himself to man was not through the law, which came later. It was not even through uh, 
the manifestation of the writings of the prophets through teachers and, and religious ceremony and that sort of thing. But the most valuable way God reveals himself to us, to man, to teach us not only who we are but who he is as well is through relationships. And the most intimate relationships known to man are family relationships. And so I want you to see this way in which God actually revealed who he was by making us who we are. First of all, when you, look, when you think of the concept of God, you need to think of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But don't just think of it in the theological terms of the Trinity. Think of it in practical and personal terms of a family. You've got God the Father, who is obviously fulfilling the father role. And, and naturally, normally we think of God the Son, Jesus Christ, who fulfills the role of the child or children in the family system. But who's the, who's the mother over here? Who's God the mother? Now, without being sacrilegious or, or trying to sound uh, a little radical here, I want you to recognize that the, the Holy Spirit the third person of the, of the Godhead, of the Trinity, really represents the maternal side of God, or the feminine side of God. You all realize, of course, that God is more than just a man. Um, we use masculine terms to refer to God. The scriptures refer to him as he or him because he uses it in the masculine gender. But he's more than that. He also includes woman as well. So God encompasses both genders, both male and female, and so we're going to put the Holy Spirit now in the role of the woman or the mother in this divine family, if you will. Another thing I want you to notice about this is this is a community. There's more than one person here. Even though they share the same uh, essence and quality, they all three are God, and this is a great mystery. Uh, concerning the Trinity, but even though they share the same essence, they're revealed in three different roles. God the Father is an originator and planner. God the Holy, uh, Holy Spirit is the power source, and God the Son is the executor of the plan. They serve different roles to reveal God in a family system, if you will. So really, this is the first family system that the Bible knows anything about. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And you'll notice this family terminology, by the way, all the way through the scriptures. Jesus particularly revealed this. The Old Testament scriptures had uh, not quite as many family references, but in the New Testament, when Jesus came on the scene, his, it was his job to reveal the Father, to show us a family relationship. And of course, the most beautiful thing about that, I just need to anticipate it right here for you, the most beautiful thing about that is that he includes us in his family. He brings us into his family. And that, that we're going to try to address here now as we look at this creative, creative account of how God expressed himself. Being the father, of course, he created Adam, who represents the husband or the father in the family system. And, of course, he saw that it was not good that Adam be alone, so he created him a help a helper, a paraclete, one who would walk alongside. And that's where the woman came into the picture. And of course, when you read in the biblical narrative, you're going to find that he also, they also were commanded after the creation to be fruitful and multiply 
and produce then the children or the offspring that would complete the family system. What God was concerned with in creation right from the outset, his number one concern was revealing himself through family relationships. Now, is it any wonder then that we have so many troubles in our families? Is it any wonder or should we be amazed that we have so many family difficulties? And here I'm not just talking about the, quote, heathen world out there somewhere. I'm talking about Christian folk, people who say they know God, who desire to know God, having problems in a family-type relationship. The reason for that is the importance of the revelation given by a family. You see, the father's love for his child is a, is a picture that all of us receive. That was the first picture we received of God. Did you know that? Before you're ever old enough to speak any words at all, the first picture, snapshot picture you got in knowing God was a relationship you had to your father. Now, psychologists and literature are just bringing this out now to light that the most formative, most uh, powerful years in the life of a child, the first five years in relationship to their father. This illustrates for us in the secular realm what the scriptures refer to as the father's love for the son. Likewise, the maternal uh, instincts that God gives and places within our hearts and the hearts of ladies to care for in a miraculous and supernatural way uh, to love not only their husband but also their child is a very miraculous display of God's love and a very tender display of God's love as well. What God designed this whole family system to be was one big object lesson of his love, his nurture, his care. And it, it's within that, that object lesson, if you will, or within that family design that God intended you and I to grow up in a nurturing environment that would give us a sense of security and significance that would actually enable us to develop in a functional way and relate to others and produce that. Now, originally, God's plan was this family unit. And so in verse 18, when you read in Genesis 2, it was not good for man to be alone. He's, what he's saying there, in essence, is just simply that God cannot fully manifest himself with one individual only. He must use relationships between these individuals, the relationship between a husband and wife, the relationship between a parent and child. These basic relationships of the family are what illustrate God's love and his character in our everyday lives. Now, I want us to take some time while we're here just to look at the relationship, first of all, between the husband and wife in a typical family relationship. And let's draw out of these verses some things that I think are going to be very significant and important for us to understand what it means to relate in a healthy way uh, with one another in a family context. You'll notice that in verse 22, or verse 21, I beg your pardon, the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. Now, the miraculous thing about this was not really that this was the first anesthetic in the scripture. He didn't just put Adam to sleep here and, and Adam uh, went to sleep like we go to sleep for surgery. Actually, I think it means more than this because of what he did to Adam. You see, after he, he caused this deep sleep to fall upon Adam, we read in the King James English, in the King James translation, he took one of his ribs. Now, a more literal translation of this, a little harder to understand, but a more literal translation of this is he took 
one of his sides. He actually cut him in half. He took half of what Adam was made to be. This would mean that Adam didn't just go to sleep, Adam died, which is analogous to the use of the term sleep in the scriptures as referring to death. Um, there are many, I'm not going to take the time now to give you those scriptures, but sleep all, always figuratively uh, pictures the death of one of God's children. And so I think this is actually what happened. God actually killed Adam, if you will, sacrificed him so that he could make from Adam a woman. Now what this has to do with us personally today and practically in a family system particularly is this. In order for a family system to work in a functional way, we men must recognize that what it's going to take, the cost that's going to have to be paid for a family system to be healthy is our own death. Now, I'm not talking about a physical death in which you die and you go on to be with the Lord and leave your family behind. I'm talking about a spiritual death, a death that we'll be describing later in our series that happens to us the minute we receive Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, the death of the old, sinful, dysfunctional person we were born as and a resurrection of a brand new person that is now capable of loving others like Christ. This kind of death process has to happen in order for a marriage relationship to actually be functional and healthy. And it's illustrated here in our text by the fact that God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And while he was asleep, in that death experience, if you will, out of that death experience, God brought the woman. Yes, he took the other half of Adam and he constituted a woman and he reconstituted Adam into a man and he brought them together in what we now refer to as the first marriage. And notice another principle here in passing that God, after he made the woman, brought the woman to the man. Adam didn't chase around looking for the woman. He didn't run all over the garden looking for a wife. God brought the woman to the man. In a very special way, it's important to emphasize this, especially for folks who are not married, who are single, it is particularly of interest that you realize that God brings your mate. He doesn't expect you to chase your mate down. I know we make a lot of jokes about that, and we, we go through all kinds of romantic gyrations and so on, but you see, the real spiritual issue here, and personal issue, is that God is involved in bringing people together. As a matter of fact, this is what Jesus said in Matthew 19 when he said, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. He didn't say whom God has joined together. He said what, meaning that that union between two people, God has designed uh, to be a very special union, is something that he himself has to create. It's not something we can produce just because we happen to get together. So the second principle here is the fact that that God brought the woman to the man. Now notice the man's response here. I can't help but think of what Adam had in his mind the first time he laid eyes on Eve. I think she probably was the most beautiful thing he'd ever seen in his life. And he checked everything out. And By the way, Adam was not a caveman. You all realize that, don't you? You realize that, that he wasn't crawling around and trying to invent the wheel and the cave and all that kind of stuff. He, he was highly intelligent. In fact, the verses we kind of skipped over here in our reading uh, illustrates that he actually classified all the animals according to their structure and function and was very intelligent. But when he saw that woman, 
that God had made for him. And God brought that woman to her. It fulfilled in him a need that God had also created that gave him a very beautiful explanation of, of what was missing in him that God saw that he didn't know originally. And when he saw her, I can just imagine him thinking she's the most beautiful thing he's ever seen in her life. It's kind of like when I first saw my wife, Sandy. When I first saw my wife, Sandy, I said, that's the most beautiful girl I've ever seen in my life. And to me, she was the most beautiful girl. Now, somebody else can, you know, they can say, no, my wife's more pretty than that. <laughs> or, or somebody can say, well, she's never been a Miss America. But to me, you see, when God brought us together, that was the most beautiful woman to me. And this is what happened to Adam. When God brings two people together, they're so satisfied that the beauty of that moment, of that union, will stay with them. And, and many times that's what's required to hold them together, too. Now, let's notice a couple other little uh, principles in passing here. When Adam saw this woman, notice what he said. The first words out of his mouth when he saw the woman. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That's a pretty strange statement. How about the next time somebody introduces you to somebody like there, you put two singles together. Wouldn't it be strange for one of them to say, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. That's a strange statement, but realize he says this here so that we can relate to a very uh, deep principle of relationships, and that is this, that Adam recognized that what she was, he was. What he was, she was. You all following me on that? Adam actually recognized that they were one. Now, this has a very practical side to it that I'll just mention to you in passing. And that practical side is in relationships with other people, especially in a marriage relationship, but it generalizes to others, we can never get away with hurting another person. If they're truly bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh, even though we think we're completely justified in doing it, even though we swear that there is no no other way for us to act except to retaliate, to seek vengeance, or to in some way inflict some kind of pain on the other person, and we're absolutely justified in doing that, either by what we say or what we do, we'll never get away with it. And the reason is they're bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. This is especially true in a marriage relationship. Being bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh means that there is no possible way that I can get away with hurting that woman who is my wife, Sandy. If I hurt her, ultimately it's going to come back on me. If I, if I in any way uh, cut her down or slander her or verbally abuse her or physically mistreat her, that's going to come back on me because she is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Now the same thing is true, by the way, with all relationships. And let me just take a moment to generalize that. This is why Jesus said those words like, love your enemies. If there was ever a person in the world that you thought ought to be hurt, it would be your enemy, wouldn't it? When I was in the army, they trained us to kill our enemy. They trained us how to recognize and destroy very quickly our enemy. And of course, we were all quite justified in doing that because this was a political thing and we were fighting for our country, et cetera, et cetera. But you can never get away with it, folks, ever. Why? Because they're bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh. God has made all kindred races of one blood. They all came out of the same stock. Now, 
There's never a time, ever, when we can get away with hurting another person, ever. And this is what God meant to illustrate when he brought the woman to Adam, and Adam said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The other thing I'd like to mention along that line is that what the woman was, or what the man was, rather, the woman became. Whenever I do counseling, any type of marriage counseling, I've been doing pastoral counseling for 20 years, and when I, when I do marriage counseling, I always look to the husband first. I've had many wives come from time to time to me and say, I really need to sit down and talk with you and counsel with you, and I'll tell them, no, I can't. And there's two reasons I can't. The first is a defensive reason. I cannot counsel another man's wife because if I'm going to lead her spiritually and counsel with her spiritually, I'm going to commit spiritual adultery with that woman because, you see, I'm not her leader. Her husband is. And so that's the first reason. It's kind of a defensive thing. But the second reason is a real practical reason, and that is the only way I can possibly help that woman is to help the man she's married to. You see, because they're bone of their bone and flesh of their flesh, there's that union there. So Adam recognized this. He says, what the, what the woman is, is taken out of me. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. This puts a great responsibility on us, guys, a real responsibility that we all need to, to think about seriously. And that responsibility is that we, as the head of the home, as leaders in the family system, are responsible before God for the well-being of those within the family. We determine the characteristics of the family system. Now, I know this is kind of scary, and, and some folks would, would get real nervous at this point, especially you ladies, when you start looking at your husband and you say, is it up to him? Is he the one that's going to determine what our family's like? And I want to comfort you in this, that God is gracious. He does work with flaky husbands, but he also works in spite of flaky husbands. All right? And I don't mean to to carry this too far, but what I want you to understand is that the husband is held ultimately responsible by God for the welfare of that family system. It's a heavy responsibility that we as men need to shoulder. And our society today has, has entered into the corruption and the dysfunction it has primarily, in my opinion, because men have not shouldered spiritual responsibility before God, personal responsibility before their family, They've not shouldered that responsibility and assumed their rightful position as leaders in the family system. And this causes that whole family system to fall apart. Well, Adam recognized his responsibility of leadership when, she said, when he said she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. But I want you to notice something else here in these verses while we're here. He said that in verse 24, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Have you ever noticed how leaving father and mother is kind of a mute point for Adam and Eve? I mean, they didn't have a father and mother to leave, did they? But it's not written for Adam's and Eve's sake, you understand. It's written for our sake. And what he's getting around to here is not just a physical relocation. You know, sometimes we think leaving father and mother means you move off to another town after you get married. 
which sometimes is helpful depending on the situation. Or leaving father and mother means that you never again see them or you don't have anything to do, you move across the world or whatever. That's not really what he's talking about. What he's talking about is leaving them mentally. You see, all of the environmental influences that shape and mold you to be who you are, the vast majority of them began at birth, or even before birth, the research shows us in utero, it began in your family system that you grew up in with your mom and your dad or your guardians, whoever raised you up. All of that is stored in our minds, and what we'll look at later is our subconscious mind, and that is what we have to leave. How many of you can still hear things that your mom or dad have said to you in the past, even now? All right, you can hear things or statements. You may be out doing something, and you say, oh, I know what my dad would say about that, or I know what my mom would, would say if she saw me doing this. Okay, that's the father and mother he's talking about in here. You see, each one of us, when we come together in a marriage union, we're not, it took me a while to realize that I wasn't just marrying my wife. I was also marrying her mom. I was also marrying her dad. I was also marrying her brother and all of their family and their relationship. You see, I it took me a little while to, for me to dawn on, for it to dawn on me that I was actually in relationship with all these other people, some of whom I just met as recent as two weeks ago. I was in relationship with them by marriage. All right? Now, what each one of us carries this into our relationships. Each one of us carries with us the things that have shaped and molded us into our relationships with others. Understandably, there are some really good things very positive things. And in fact, and I think it's necessary from time to time to remind ourselves that it wasn't just only dysfunction we got from our parents. We learned to tie our shoes, too. Okay? And that's fairly functional if you want to walk around in the morning. We learned to eat and dress ourselves, etc. There are a lot of things we learned from our parents in that growing up uh, years in our family system that were healthy and functional and good for us. So we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. But likewise, there's dysfunction that we learned as well, because no family is perfect. This family I have on the board here, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the family we refer to as God, the Trinity, that's perfect. That's a perfect family. But the families that reflect that image are not perfect since the fall of Adam in the garden. And so we have things in our background that we carry with us into relationships. What Adam was doing when he said, Therefore shall a man leave father and mother and cleave unto his wife. What he was saying is we're going to have to learn to deal with this conditioning that we've had all our lives. We're going to have to, first of all, recognize who we are because of it and then learn to deal with it in a healthy way from the scriptures, applying the gospel of Jesus Christ to it. We're going to have to learn to deal with the upbringing we had to compensate for that which was dysfunctional and to accentuate or enhance that which was healthy and functional. Now, to show you the ideal relationship, we'll just uh, leave off with this one comment on verse 25. He says, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. When we ask the question, who are we? Frequently, we, we will start out thinking of the positive things that we are, you know. I am successful in this regard, in that regard, in relationship, or I've done this, or I've, we list out some of our accomplishments and that sort of thing. But before long, 
there's sneaky little things that start surfacing that we remember what we did that were wrong. Things that we did that we we're ashamed of. Things that we did or said that put us in a bad light, that made us particularly look bad to other people. Or things that we did that we now have to live with as a source of irritation at the least and grief at the most. These things begin to creep in and we begin to identify ourselves in a negative way according to our past experiences as well. When it comes to a relationship, we're very, very careful about who we open up and share these things with. There are certain things I don't mind any of you folks knowing about me. There are certain things I don't mind folks on video watching this to know about me. As if, if I did, I wouldn't be standing up here doing this on video. There are certain things that I would, I would like for people to know about me, but there are other things that I don't want anybody to know about me, that I would be mortified if somebody found them out about me. You all following what I'm saying? In other words, there, there are certain hidden secrets that we all have, hidden agendas that we all have, that we don't want to get out to let other people see. And so, as a result, we put on a front, a false front, a facade, or we, we put on a mask of some sort, and we don't want people to see us as we really are. This goes back to that negative self-image that we frequently have and carry around. If people, our idea, our basic fear is this, if people really knew what I was like, truly, inside, they would reject me. They wouldn't have anything to do with me. In a relationship as intimate as marriage relationship or family relationships, this is also true. There are many wives and husbands who are not able to be completely open. When we're told that Adam and Eve were naked, we're not just talking about physical nudity running around with any, without any clothes on. Uh, from my own speculation, I have, a, I, I have this pet little idea that they didn't need clothes. And it wasn't just because there wasn't anybody else around either, but I think their bodies were very much like Jesus' body on the Mount of Transfiguration, which radiated light. So you wouldn't see any physical nudity, you would see light radiating from them before the fall. And I, I don't think the author really has in mind here that they were just running around without clothes on when he said they were naked. I think what he has in mind is the transparency, the openness, and the honesty that they enjoyed in their relationship between each other. They were not afraid to be open and transparent with each other. They were not afraid to share with each other their deepest thoughts and desires. They were not afraid of being rejected by each other. They were completely open and honest. Now, what makes us afraid of opening up is that vulnerability puts us in a place of people taking advantage of us. Adam and Eve, you see, had no worry about that originally. They were not at all afraid to be real and to be open with each other. And the reason for that, we'll track back a little later, is that they were not afraid because they knew who they were. They knew who God had made them to be, how he had created them, the environment that he had put them in. They knew everything about themselves that was positive and good. Now, all of that drastically changed. I don't know how long they lived in this condition here where they were naked and not ashamed, where they were not afraid, but suddenly it drastically changed in an instant. You'll recall that God had commanded them, 
saying, you can eat of all these fruit trees in the garden. I don't know how many fruit trees there were. There were probably hundreds of fruit trees. Knowing God as I do, he's a God of variety. He loves to make different things and a variety of the same kinds of things. And so I would imagine there were hundreds of trees in that garden that they could freely eat of, a very delicious fruit that would more than satisfy them. Not only their, their hunger, but actually taste good, too. You can satisfy your hunger, can't you, with things that don't really taste good. But they, they actually ate of hundreds of trees. But he said there's one tree in the middle of this garden. And ironically, he called it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, I want you to try to remember that for later in our series, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let me give you some other names for that. That's the tree of knowing what's right and what's wrong. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and the knowledge of evil, knowing what's right and what's wrong. I also call it the tree of law. He says, I don't want you to eat of this tree, the knowledge of good and evil. You can eat of all the other trees. They'll satisfy you, but I don't want you to eat of this tree. And immediately you read on in chapter 3 how that he was actually, God actually allowed them to experience a temptation in what we call as a fall. Now, I'm not going to take the time in this session to go through a full exposition of this, but I want you to see what it was that was challenged in this temptation. In the, in the verses that follow in chapter 3, you're introduced to another character here besides Adam and Eve and God. There's actually two characters, the one you can see, the other you can't see. The one you can see is this character of the snake in the garden. I call him the smart snake here. And this smart snake obviously talked. Now, this is an amazing thing to me when, um, well, let's just read it, verse 1. He says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Now imagine this. Just picture this for a minute in your mind. Here, Adam and Eve are in the garden. They're walking down, I don't know, a pathway of some sort. And the snake's with them. Now that's the first thing that begins to tell you there's something a little different here, right? I don't know about you, but if I'm walking down a pathway and the snake's with me, one or the other of us is going to leave here. Okay? But the snake's with them. And not only is the snake with them, but the snake talks. Now that's real strange. If I go home and I see a snake on my front porch, that's going to be bad enough for me. But if that snake starts talking to me, then I'm going to lose it all together. But apparently it didn't freak Eve out. She apparently was used to a snake talking to her. Apparently they'd have other conversations because you don't see anything in the record about her falling out or anything like that. So apparently she has some kind of ability to commune and knew about this ability to communicate with a snake. But notice what the snake said, the very first thing out of his mouth, which tells us that about the other character that's not seen here. The very first thing out of his mouth was a question, a question that we're going to be trying to answer throughout our whole Alpha series. The question is, yea, hath God said? Another way of saying that is, are you sure you can believe what the Word of God says about you and your situation. Are you sure you can believe that? You see, he introduced here a question in the mind of Eve concerning herself, her own identity, and her own needs, and her own provisions. 
Are you sure you can trust God? Yea, hath God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Now notice also how Satan works through this smart snake, because his, his deceptions are the same today. And we all struggle with this to one degree or another. Notice that he got her mind on what was negative here. You see that? Yea, hath God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Now, Eve tried. I think you see in the narrative, she tried to come back thinking positive here, but that little interjection of a negative thought is what plagues most of us, whether we're thinking about ourselves or about others. You see, you can have a pretty good day and, and do all right with people and, and not have too much problem going on and, and actually be fairly successful in your life on one day, and then somebody towards the end of that day comes up and criticizes you about something you did. What are you going to think about that night? Aren't you going to think about that one criticism you got all day? That's going to be like an obsessive thought that keeps coming back to you again and again. All the other uh, successes that you enjoyed that day are going to be minimized and put in the shadows by this one word of criticism. That's the impact of negative thinking. Now, the way that Eve was tempted with this was he came to her and said, now you can't eat of all the trees. You, never mind, in fact, you've got hundreds of trees that are good for you. You can't eat of one. You, you can't have this one. Now notice how Eve fought back, and she tried to say, in, in a very powerful way, actually, that God actually had provided for them uh, when she said, verse 2, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. Look around you. We've got all these trees to eat. But notice what she said in the next verse, verse 3, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, in the very middle, which means you'd have to pass hundreds of trees to get to it, by the way, the tree in the midst of the garden, God said, don't eat it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, an important little point here, and this seems like it may be nitpicking, but I want you to understand this. God didn't say, don't touch it. If you read back in the context, back in chapter 2, God said, don't eat it. He didn't say, don't touch it. So the question is, who said don't touch it? Guys, I think we're going to have to take the heat on this one. I think the one who said don't touch it was Adam when he taught Eve about this tree. Can't you just see Adam leading Eve to the tree, bring her up to the tree and said, this is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now God said we're not to eat of this because if we eat of this tree, we'll die. So keep your mitts off the tree. Don't touch the tree. What we have there is the first instance of legalism, man-made traditions trying to do the work of God. The first instance. Satan knew that. And as soon as he heard, don't you touch it, he knew also what was in the mind of Eve. And what was in the mind of Eve is, I'm going to show that guy. He's treating me like a little kid. He don't even want me to touch this tree. I'm going to show him. Satan knew that was already there. He knew the rift was already there. And so he moves on in dealing with Eve. And I, again, we're not going to go through the whole story here. You, most of you know and understand the story um, of the temptation here. But he questioned directly now the provisions of God and actually brought a half-truth in when he said, verse 4, And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. 
you're not going to die physically. You can die personally, relationally, spiritually, but you won't die physically. You shall not surely die. And then he goes on to say, For God does know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Now, what appeals to us in being gods is control. If we're like God, that means we can control things. We've got, we can manage things and people to make ourselves okay. And this was very appealing to Eve. She saw not only it was good for food, but it was also something to make her wise like Adam and something that she could control. And so she took the fruit and ate it. But you notice, I always like to think that Adam was off doing God's business elsewhere while this was going on, that he was all tied up doing something real important, and that's why he couldn't be there with his wife. But the fact is, Adam was right there next to her the whole time, because if you'll read in the, in the uh, seventh verse, or in the last part of the sixth verse, after she took and ate, she gave to her husband with her, and he did eat. Her husband was with her the whole time. Now this brings us to a point that we males have to come to grips with and own up to, and that's a spiritual passive role, that we typically fall into a very passive role spiritually. We lead, leave the leadership of the family up to the woman or the children or whoever we think are in control because, you see, when you take leadership, you might blow it. You might make a mistake. And so wanting to protect yourself, you kind of adopt this passive role. Well, this is what Adam was doing. He was watching this whole thing come down with, the wife, with his wife and that snake, that smart snake. But he was passive. He didn't say a word. And when she gave him the fruit, his choice was, well, I'm either going to eat this or I'm going to lose Adam, or Eve, rather. And so he took it and ate. Adam was after the woman. The woman was after control. Now, this leads us to serious problems that we all inherited. So we wrap this session up here today. I want to leave you with this serious problem we're going to be addressing. You see, Adam and Eve, after they fell, became very nervous. They became very scared. They were worried because they knew the hard way, the difference between good and evil. They had just stepped over the line. And in order for us to really appreciate what they feel or felt, we have only to look inside of ourselves and to see what we have to grapple with every day. Adam had a core issue of fear. When God came walking into the garden, Adam ran and hid himself. He actually hid behind the bush that God had made, naked and ashamed. Eve went with him. They were both scared. When God said, Adam, where are you? Who told you you were naked? And called him to confession. Adam still wouldn't confess. He did something else. He blamed the wife. The woman you gave me. It's her fault. She gave me the fruit, and I did eat. Now, these core issues we have all inherited. The Bible is very clear on this, that as natural descendants of Adam, genetically we receive that which makes up who we are from Adam, and spiritually we received a sin nature from Adam as well. So that every person born into this world is in the same condition Adam and Eve were after they failed. They're naked and ashamed. Every person born into this world are scared. They're afraid. They're motivated by fear. And what we need to learn is how to address that fear. Now, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that 
like Jesus told Nicodemus, you were born once naked and ashamed. Now you need to be born again. And when you're born again, the clothing that we receive is the righteousness of Christ, being worthy as Christ was worthy. And God covers our nakedness. He clothes us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ with his love. The whole transition from being in Adam then to being in Christ, worthy and clothed with the righteousness of Christ, is what's essential for us to understand in order to develop a healthy self-image that is based on the real image that God has designed to create us in. You recall back in chapter 1 of Genesis, God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. The fact that we are a three-part being, the fact that we relate to each other in family systems is after the image of God. However, the likeness of God awaits a second birth. The likeness of God is given to us when we are born again, when we are born not of the flesh, but of the spirit. That brings with it a brand new identity that is no longer worthless, no longer guilty, ashamed, fearful, but an identity that is worthy because it's an identity of being born of the Spirit, being born into God's family, and being one with Christ. Whereas before we were in Adam, sinful, depraved, selfish. By the way, you don't have to teach two-year-olds to be selfish, do you? You don't have to teach little kids in the nursery to fight over toys and hit each other. We have to try to socialize them somehow so they won't kill each other before they're five. That's natural. It's born in us to be self-centered. It's born in us to be fearful. It's born in us to be ashamed. But what's supernatural is the new birth. The new birth that God gives us in Christ. The new nature and the new life that he gives us that is a life, the very life of Christ, is the good news. It's that identity that we want to address now. It's the identity that we have in Christ Jesus, so radically different from the old identity that we had in Adam that we want to turn our attention to. It's that identity that sets us free in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord.